Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. I think what we've learned at least two weeks from our study in Hosea is that there are certainly things we can do that deceive us. Uh, so when we are deceive ourselves, not in terms of the Lord's clarity, but in terms of what we do. Uh, we can do these things in the name of piety, in the name of religion. And this fits right in with this Lord's Prayer when we talk about doing the will of God. Uh, so often we can kind of uh, think or, or maybe uh, act as if it's easy to always know the will of God and what is right and what is wrong. Uh, certainly, Scripture sets clear parameters. I, I'm not saying that Scripture is gray or there's nothing we can know. But in terms of making day-to-day -day decisions, sometimes we truly can have a difficulty in knowing what is right, what is honorable, and what is not. I mean, for instance, we heard this morning uh, the warning of, of eating, right? Eating itself is not necessarily bad, uh, but when we deal with it in terms of the priests, what are they doing? They're overindulging. Uh, so again, that's, we're allowed to eat, we need food, uh, but yet there's that understanding of how uh, our greed or, or pursuit of sin can uh, never fully be satisfied. And so when we talk about the will of God, that's sort of what we are doing in terms of our prayer, isn't it? We're praying that we would discern what is right and wrong in all circumstances. How we conduct ourselves, how we use our time that God has given us, how we use our downtime, etc., and what we do for His honor and glory. And so I wanted to look at this in terms of how we can see this on the one hand by emphasizing renouncing our desires. We can take this to an extreme where any human desire we have is necessarily wrong, and so we shouldn't have any human desires. Some people may take it that way. But then we also see the flip side of this where we affirm God's desires. And so it's understanding the will of God and how we know which desires within us are wrong and which ones need to be brought in line with God. And so let's begin with renouncing our wills, as the Catechism says, renouncing our desires. Now, as I've mentioned, this request is, is kind of a tough thing to hear because if we're very tender in conscience, we can think that anything we want to do is necessarily wrong. And that can obviously get us in a position uh, where we're kind of gridlocked and, and we just kind of stop and, and we don't know how to move forward. This can become even more complicated when we read in Jeremiah 17 verse 9, where the prophet Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So now when you hear this, you say, well, how can I trust anything within myself that's right or wrong? How do I know? The scripture itself tells me that I am inherently deceitful and wicked, then that would seem to suggest that everything that, that I want to do 
It's just sinful. And it's wrong. It's immoral. And I shouldn't want to do it. So on the one hand, you say, well, that, that's easy. Anything you want to do, just repent of it because it's wrong. But the, the reality is then we can never really know anything with certainty, right? And you look at Jeremiah 17, and this is a passage that those who want to abuse or claim domination or whatever can certainly use. They can say, well, I'm mature. I know what's right and wrong. Let me tell you how to truly live your life. Uh, we can read of the Apostle Paul as he's attacked by the mature and how they claim that the Apostle Paul is one who really doesn't know right and wrong. And so these sorts of things, it isn't just a contemporary discussion. It's something that we see, Galatians, 2 Corinthians especially, where Paul defends his honor. These sorts of mindsets, these sorts of things uh, uh, Christians can cultivate within themselves and use it to gain domination. And we ourselves can also have a problem where we wonder what is right and what is wrong. Now when we look at Romans 12, and I mentioned verses 1 and 2, uh, would be our launching point. And we look at Romans 12, and, and here we, we have an issue uh, where the Apostle Paul lays out how we live our lives. And as he's exhorting us and, and reminding us that we are those who live for the glory of God. Now, we've looked at Romans 12 before. Uh, we dealt with Romans 12 in terms of Lord's Day 40 with murder and its deeper meaning. We've looked at Romans 12 uh, where we... Uh, consider the nature of how we live out the gospel for the honor and glory of God. We talked about Christian metamorphosis and that transformation. Now, some people, when they look at Romans 12, and, and so again, I, I thought Romans 12 would be helpful just for this topic of discerning the Lord's will and what this means. And so hopefully we, we do remember some of the things We've talked about, especially the Christian metamorphosis, where we're being transformed from this age to the age to come. When we talk about Romans 12, some people say that this is really Paul's ethics in, in terms of living out the gospel. Now, I would say it's certainly an ethical passage in that there's exhortations. But I wouldn't say Romans 12 is a place where we, we turn to find the real basis for Paul's ethics. We would probably want to turn to Romans 6. Maybe Romans 8 uh, would be another place. Romans 6 especially, where he reminds us that we are those who are born of Christ, slaves of righteousness, and those sorts of reminders. Romans 12 is more of the Apostle Paul saying, remember what I told you back there? Now let's continue to apply these concepts. Uh, you are those who are secured in Christ. Christ has redeemed. Uh, what does this mean as we live out the gospel for the Lord? And so I think that's where Romans 12 is, is very helpful. And, and we find something, I think, rather significant in how Paul addresses Christians. It's important to remember, he is an apostle. I don't, probably don't need to remind you of that. It's kind of stating the obvious. But he's also one who has been trained academically beyond any of the other apostles. So, so in terms of, of his academic credibility as a Christian, it's, it's beyond our comprehension. Ivy League education all the way, and he excelled in it. He is an apostle. If you're familiar with his call, it's a dramatic call, where Christ himself calls him when he's on the road to destroy the church. That's so what he's going to destroy martyr Christians. 
and he's captured along the way. So if you think of anyone who could be a spiritual elitist, it's the Apostle Paul. Apostle, dramatic conversion, incredible education, a man who, who is just incredibly gifted in so many ways as you read his letters. And truly, it's not that he needs my endorsement, but the more you read the Apostle Paul, the more you just marvel at, at the wisdom of this man and, and the intricacy of his arguments. He is truly a gifted man. And so you think about that, how does Paul turn to the church? He doesn't say, listen, you inferior Cretans, do you know my resume? You know who I am? You know how great I am? No. I love how he opens Romans 12 as he's applying the Christian ethic and exhorting us to live out the gospel. I appeal to you. A way of, of saying this is it's sort of a, a gentle reminder. This is something that good friends would say to one another, siblings maybe. Uh, maybe if you're having a friendly conversation with your parents, it might be along those lines. It's not, let me tell you exactly how things are. And so this tells us something about how the Apostle Paul reminds us. He's not a spiritual elitist. He's not saying he's better than us, even though in the reality of his Christian experience, probably an experience that's beyond anything we'll experience in our lifetime. And yet the Apostle Paul turns to us as equals. And the other thing that, that really shocks me in this is that we're Gentiles. And, and if you think about the Apostle Paul being raised as a racist from day, I mean, truly as a racist. I'm not saying this rhetorically. He was brought up to hate Gentiles. That was his identity. And now he turns to us and says, hey, I appeal to you, fellow Gentiles, who share in the same Messiah, that the same history as I have, I appeal to you. That's the tone here. And so it's very important to understand this reminder that as Paul appeals to us, he wants us to understand our status in Christ. He's basically setting us in a place where we are equals with our Lord. But as he goes on and he exhorts us, he uses this language that if we take out of context, we can have a serious problem. Because as he appeals to us as equals... He exhorts us to live as living sacrifices in verse 1. Offering our body as living sacrifices. Doing this in our spiritual worship. And so we, we, we hear this and we say, okay. And he tells us not to be conformed to the world. And once again, discern what the will of God is. So when we hear this call to discern what the will of God is, live as living sacrifices, where he equals... We can think of what the Apostle Paul has said, say in Philippians 2, verse 17, where he appeals to the Philippian church and he says he's a drink offering on the sacrifice of their faith. So now when, when we hear this, we think about what we've talked about in Jeremiah 17, where our hearts are incredibly deceptive. We can say, is the Apostle Paul, as one who's an equal to us, telling us that somehow there's something incomplete in the work of Christ? That we ourselves have to sort of finish what Christ has done. And so our living out the Christian life, discerning what is right and wrong, places upon us a burden in such a way that if we get this wrong, we have not completed the work of Christ. 
It is 99% done, and we have to do 1%. Now, if we take that, hopefully we understand the force of what the catechism is saying in renouncing our wills. If we're not careful with this, we, we can place a burden on the backs of people that are not intended to be placed there. And so I'm sort of playing the devil's advocate and renouncing of our wills and, and what that means. And I want to turn now to what does it mean by affirming God's desires? If, if our hearts are inherently wicked, we're self-deceived, we're those who are to live as living sacrifices in the body, completing the work of Christ, at least we, we could sort of read it that way. Where's our assurance? Why would we want to pursue this God if we're always going to fall flat? So what does it mean to affirm God's desires? Well, the catechism doesn't just tell us to renounce our wills, but to obey God's will. And so it's not just that we deny ourselves whatever we want to deny or say that any desire we have is inherently wicked, inherently immoral, and, and we shouldn't want it, and we should just repent of having any desires at all. But what does Jeremiah go on to say in the context of telling us that we are inherently deceptive, our hearts are completely wicked? What does he go on to remind us in Jeremiah 17 verse 10? This is where it's important to put these things into context. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You see, what Jeremiah has in mind here in terms of the whole chapter of chapter 17, and again, verse 10 could also be a bit burdensome if we take this out of context. But the whole contrast of Jeremiah 17 is a contrast of the old man and the new man. The one who's not redeemed, the one who is redeemed. And so what Jeremiah wants us to understand is that apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we're not even going to have small beginnings in discerning what the will of God is. And so that's the point of Jeremiah 17, to, to humble us, to remind us not to think of ourselves higher than we ought, to understand we're going to be a people always wrestling with what it means to live out the gospel, and that's what God wants. That's what he desires for us, that we continue to be that wrestling people. And again, it doesn't mean that we're antithetical to the purpose of God. It's not an invitation to test the boundaries of grace when I say that. But wrestling with God is that continual, what needs to be put to death within me? What needs to be brought to life for the glory of God? That's what the wrestling means. How do I bring glory to my Savior as I go about my days? As I am assured, I am redeemed in Christ. And so, again, we learn that from the Apostle Paul. We are redeemed in Christ. We know our sins have been taken away. We know we have new life. Therefore, we proceed in a confidence of that reality. But as we go on, we think about the will of God. The Catechism, as it summarizes Scripture, reminds us that we are to know God and to have the knowledge of God. So we might say, well, what, what does that mean? What, what is the knowledge of God? Because if we don't have the right knowledge of God, we're not going to have the right understanding of His will. Well, the knowledge of God we find in wisdom literature. I mean, what, what is knowledge, really, when, when we talk about that? Well, Psalm 11, verse 10 says the fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom. This is where we begin to know. Proverbs 11, verse 7. 
We have the fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge. So Psalms, Proverbs, we see something parallel, but it's a reminder. Wisdom, application of knowledge, living it out. Knowledge is where we truly know the Lord, not just about the Lord, but truly know him. We go on, Proverbs 2, verse 13, where we have the knowledge of the fear of God and keeping his commandments. So again, it's not that God hasn't given us a revelation. It's not that, that we can't learn who God is or, or learn what desires are consistent with his will. It's that reminder that we start with learning what the scripture says. We do so in humility of wanting to fear the Lord. Now, the catechism reminds us of something else as it summarizes Scripture. And I love this language, because the Apostle Paul certainly echoes this throughout Corinthians. You, you can hear this in the warnings of Israel in the wilderness, a grumbling people. It reminds us of who we are. And so the catechism picks up on this. We obey the will of God, renouncing our will without backtalk. I mean, that's something where it's you know, it's, it's one of those things you can think of yourself as, as a child, or maybe if you're still a child, I'm sure you never do this because you're far better or holier than I was as a child. But when your parents tell you to do something, you go, okay. And then you close the door and you do what you're supposed to do, but you're not really doing it with joyfulness. You're, you're, you're sort of doing it in this passive-aggressive way where you're kind of doing what your parents ask, but you're making known you're not happy about it. So the catechism is saying we're not to do the will of God in this manner. And, and, and to remind ourselves that whatever the Lord calls us to do, we're doing it truly out of joy. Uh, that we get to do this for his honor and glory as his uh, desire is for us. I also love this language that the catechism uses because it, it moves us from an exhortation, not doing it without backtalk, to reminding us as to the true motivation. But, but it, it unifies us with, with the heavenly army. Where it says we carry out his office and calling, right? So we're doing what God desires for us to do as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. And you think about the Apostle Paul when he writes to the Corinthians and he recounts as being called up into the highest heavens or the third heavens where he sees the working of God. And how the apostle Paul is putting the, the super apostles in their place where he's saying, I've actually seen the operation of heaven. We think of Isaiah with Isaiah 6 where Isaiah is the one who, on the one hand, when he's called into the presence of God, he says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, I'm from a people who are unclean, uh, I shouldn't be here. Bring me back to earth. I am very uncomfortable. You have the coal from the altar touch his mouth. And what does Isaiah say? Send me. I will bring your word. And so you're, you're seeing there this alignment between Isaiah, the angels of heaven, and doing the purpose of God. We think of Abraham, and I always go back to this story. I think a lot of times we minimize its significance for prayer. When the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham and tells him about Sodom and Gomorrah. And you have Abraham, on the one hand, being very respectful to the Lord, you know, saying, if, if I can push one more, or if I can push on you just, just a little bit more, is sort of the, the, the essence of what the text is getting at, where he doesn't want to push the boundaries of God's grace, but he's saying, I understand you're gracious. If I can make another request, and he goes all the way down to 10 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, He's in line with the purpose of God. He's in line with the Lord's judgment. 
But as one who's a Christian walking on this earth and, and wanting to defend um, his nephew Lot and make it so Lot doesn't have to leave that particular place, he's trying to just see if maybe if he gives his input to the Lord, that, that maybe the Lord will, will relinquish his desires and, and maybe not destroy the city. And so you see Abraham sort of functioning as Isaiah, but instead of being in the heavenly courtroom, he's on earth talking to the Lord. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable view of prayer that, that our Lord is listening to him. And of course, it's not that we're going to have the same interaction that Abraham has, but we see how our prayers impact the Lord and come before him. And so this is that reminder that as we're praying, our, our desire is that we want to be in line with the heavenly purpose, the heavenly warriors. We, we want not necessarily be an antithetical people or always just disagreeable and, and miserable to be around, but to be a people that have no proper discernment of the right fights to fight at the right times, the right way to bring glory to God, the right times to suffer at the right times, the, the right times to live out the gospel, to keep our mouths shut in the right times to speak when we should speak. That's really what this is getting at, that, that we have that wisdom to know how we do this in a way that glorifies and honors God. I mean, an example is Barry Webb uh, when he gave a lecture on Job. It's something that always stuck with me. He said Job is one who's absolutely right, absolutely wrong at the same time when you listen to him speak. Absolutely right in the sense that he hasn't done anything directly to deserve the Lord's punishment or, or suffering, but on the other hand, he's absolutely wrong because he celebrates and rests in his own self-righteousness if you really listen to his speeches. And so that's really what, what this is getting at with the angels in heaven, that we have a clear view of ourselves in light of who we are as a people called to bring glory to the Lord. So now I've brought up some scenarios. When do we speak? When do we stay quiet? When do we suffer? When do we fight? Uh, how do we conduct ourselves in day-to-day -day business for the glory of God? How do we go about our days? You know, there's a, a, a variety of questions we, we can ask and bring up. We might say, well, then, how do we answer those particular details? I mean, obviously, we, we learn from Psalms, Proverbs, not denying there's absolute truth in Scripture. There's absolute boundaries. But there's those issues in terms of living within those boundaries in our Christian liberty. How, how do I know this is right. How do I know this is wrong? Why doesn't God make this more explicit and just tell me, do this or do that, make this decision or make that decision. This is the right way to go. This is the wrong way to go. Well, we learn from Galatians 3 verse 25, again, the Apostle Paul and his theology. And in Galatians, Paul reminds us that we walk by faith in the power of the Spirit. We're no longer under a guardian. We're those who are to discern what's right and wrong. We think about God creating Adam in the Garden of Eden. He didn't create him to be a robot. Adam was created with a position, ability to either submit to God or to rule for self. Edmund Clowney in his lectures of biblical theology, probably uh, Clowney being in the Garden of Eden, these things are so old, uh, but one of the great gems from this lecture is when Clowney talks about the will of God in this series. And Clowney says, you know, the, the reality is, as to what God wants is he wants us to live out the gospel, right? 
And so if he tells us explicitly how to do this, well then, we're never going to have to truly fight and wrestle and know how to do it. Uh, Clowney uses an analogy of when a child comes of age and, and the child leaves the house. You kind of want to know what, what happens. What's the child going to do? What kind of guidance can, can we give? Uh, what, what sorts of things is, is this child going to do as they leave the house? And that's sort of how the Lord is dealing with us. What are we going to do when we have to make these decisions in terms of the will of God? Are we going to wrestle with, with what is right and wrong in these particular circumstances? Are we going to own what is wrong and then desire to change course? Or are we just going to continue to stay on course? And so that's the, the point of what we find in this request, isn't it? Teach us to do your will is in a very practical way, not only being aligned with the purpose of God, but may I, in my day-to-day -day life, be, be tender uh, to your desires, tender to what glorifies you, tender to the reality that I am called to bring glory to your name. And so when we get back then to Romans 12, and we've kind of addressed uh, Jeremiah, but the Apostle Paul mentioning <clears throat> this notion of us being these living sacrifices unto God. And the implication that, that we might want to say that maybe this implies that the work of Christ is not complete. And it's up to us within our own bodies to complete the work of Christ. What do we do with this? Because obviously if we just read Romans 12, 1, take it at face value, we, we could take that understanding from it. Well, let's dig deeper into the text. We already mentioned Philippians 2, verse 17. And it's the same concept that Paul is addressing here. And it's a concept of Paul, if we read Philippians 2, verse 17, in its context, in a particular offering. And again, this is, if somebody brings these things to you and, and you don't know how to answer them, don't be afraid to open your scripture and say, what's the context of this passage? I understand the persuasion of what you're saying. I just don't know if you're understanding this properly. But if you look at Philippians 2, verse 17, the Apostle Paul refers to himself as a particular offering. He's a drink offering. Now, the drink offering, when you look at this in the Old Testament case law, the, um, you know, the five books of Moses, you think of Israel and their temple worship. Numbers 15, 1 through 10 talks about free will offerings and burnt offerings, as we can say. And what the drink offering is, it's a complementary offering. And so what it communicates with, in the case of a burnt offering, the whole offering is, is a thing that's offered unto God. The drink offering is sort of the sweetness. It's, it's sort of the, the side thing that communicates communion with God. Uh, we think about the Thanksgiving offering where this is also offered. You uh, have a good year or you're thankful for something. Maybe God brought you through a particular time in life and you're like, praise be to God. I, I recognize that this is by his hand. I want to do something to communicate um, my love for him, my communion with him. And that was basically the Thanksgiving offering. You would sit down with the priest and you'd have a meal and the picture is in the presence of God. And so the drink offering is not an offering uh, that turns the wrath of God away. It's not an offering that's atoning. It's not an offering that makes payment for sin. 
So this offering that Paul is speaking of is an offering that he's reminding us as to how we live. This is living out the will of God. This is our day-to-day life that in our bodies, in our consciousness, we want to live for the glory of God. That's what he's calling us to see. So he's appealing to us. Basically, um, I just want to talk to you as brothers. I want to talk to you as sisters. I want to interact with you as equals. I want to remind you, you know, let's, let's live our lives for the glory of God. That's basically the tone that the Apostle Paul intends for us here. He's not saying, finish the work of Christ because it's not done. He's saying, hey, let's consciously understand we've been redeemed in Christ. We're living by the power of that sacrifice of Christ. Now we're called to be these living sacrifices, living our lives, as our catechism puts it so well, out of gratitude. We're doing this out of joy. We've been set free. We've been redeemed. We are those who are citizens of heaven. All those blessings are called to our attention. That's what Paul wants us to understand. So now if we take this living sacrifice and we put this back in the context of Romans 12. Notice, I appeal to you, I encourage you. It's sort of a way of of taking this. Not, I want to be domineering over you. I encourage you. Think about this. And he says, by the mercies of God. So even before he talks about us, living as a sacrifice, he wants to be very clear. We are not completing the work of Christ. The only reason we live as living sacrifices is because of the mercy of God that informs us. We have new life in him. The mercy of God has been bestowed upon us. We have new life in our Redeemer. He calls us then to go on. Then as we do this, this is our spiritual worship. So this is our consciousness of living our lives, our whole being, and bringing it all under the domain of God. So it's not just our bodies and that uh, that's the only thing that matters and there's nothing else that's going on. It's basically saying everything about us, that as we live our lives before the face of God is an act of worship. You know, so often... Uh, we can think that if we're not particularly in ministry or we're not particularly in worship or we're not really in church, that, that we're not really doing something glorifying to God. The Apostle Paul's reminding us of a basic reform concept. Everything we do in life, as we do it to the glory of God, is done as an act of worship. It, it's done for his honor and glory, whatever it is, however mundane the task may be. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. We're, we're actually doing these things for the glory of God and the consciousness of, of doing what he set out before us. Because again, that's what Ephesians 2.10 reminds us, right? The works that are set out before us. We're walking in them. We're doing them for his honor and glory. But he goes on and again reviewing this notion of conformed versus transformed. And this is where I want to end in verse 2. The significance of this. Because when we think about this nature of being transformed and and conformed in in this contrast, our temptation, as we heard this morning, again, from the more extreme uh, ways of being handed over to sin, but but the temptation is to be conformed to the world, uh, to want to walk with our eyes, to want to just see what's before us and, and walk in a manner of that wisdom, in a manner of how we conduct ourselves. Let's not say we we turn off our brains and and we don't uh, function responsibly. 
But the Apostle Paul is reminding us that even as we function responsibly, you know, making decisions with the information we have in hand, why are we doing this? What, what's the motivation? Well, it's that being transformed. Notice he says, by the renewal of your mind. And again, that transformed is where we talked about the Christian metamorphosis, that transforming from one thing to another. And so it's a very important concept to see how the Apostle Paul understands a Christian walk. Because so often we can get discouraged by this life. We, we can read things like I shared in Jeremiah and say, oh, my heart's inherently deceptive. It's inherently wicked. I can't make any decisions. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand what God is doing. He's not giving up. He is continually uh, moving us from a place of being unwholesome people to being wholesome people. He's bringing us to a place of those who are just content to live in sin and be depraved to those who want to enter the heavenly city. And so the, the beauty of this is even in this life, we may feel that it's hopeless, we may feel that it's done, maybe we think we're beyond redemption. Hopefully this morning made that clear that that's not true. But the reality is, God's preparing us, even in this life. It's not just that we die, then we enter the heavenly city. It means progressively right now as we pursue the will of God, he is transforming us to be his people. Notice then what we mentioned about Clowney and how the Lord doesn't want to just redeem robots in terms of what Clowney lectures. This is sort of an important verse for that. Because as we're being transformed in our mind, it means that we can think, we can rationally understand as we have new desires we, we can discern those new desires but we test them and we discern what is the will of God so again we've talked about this in Christian liberty what might be my boundaries are not necessarily your boundaries what may have been my boundaries years ago may not be my boundaries anymore because the reality is that as I grow or as you grow there's different things we can participate in that's not going to move us to a place of explicit sin. But we know why we do what we do. And when we talk about idolatry, there's good things that, that can be idols and get in the way of who we are in terms of our worship of God. It's going to be good things. And so there may be times when we withdraw from these things and don't pursue these things because they can distract us. doesn't mean everyone else has to pursue or, or withdraw from them. But that's what the Apostle Paul is reminding us. We know why we do what we do. We know where our struggles are. We, we know why we have set certain boundaries for ourselves. And the issue is, are these boundaries necessary? Are these the boundaries that need to be set? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But it is a, a call for us to continually take that spiritual inventory and to understand a, a, a consciousness it's not just trying to live a good, pious life before God's people. Now, I'm not against piety, and I'm not against conforming to the Lord. But trying to just look pious before God's people isn't doing anyone any good. It's not bringing glory to God. And that's what the Apostle Paul's getting at, that we have to have a, a true piety that, that's cultivated from the Spirit as we walk by faith, that, that we walk in a deliberate manner of calling out to God and saying, give me the wisdom to know what your will is. May I live it out. May I do it for your honor and glory. 
And as we do this, we, we read this knowing it's by the mercies of God. So we're not doing this to earn God's favor. We're not doing this to complete the work of Christ. We're doing this as we walk in the power of God. We want to conform to his standard of perfection and not our definition of perfection. And so again, it's that reminder of continually dying to self, living unto the Lord, in the wisdom of what that looks like. And for each of us, that may look different in our day-to-day lives. We do different things. We participate in different things. We should know the boundaries of where those are. And we do so in the wisdom of God. That's what this fundamental request is calling us to do. To understand what is inconsistent with the Lord. To want to put that to death. And notice then that request. It's praying Grant us the wisdom to do your will. In other words, we don't know it perfectly. Continually, grant us the wisdom to know your will. And so in conclusion then, how do we know if we're following the Lord correctly? How do we know if we're following the the Lord as we ought to follow the Lord? I think the reality is we have to have the humility that while we have absolute truth in Scripture, which, which I believe we do, we don't know that truth absolutely. So we, we have to have that humility. The Lord doesn't tell us what times to eat, what, how much to eat, and when we can eat, and what things to eat, right? I mean, when we talk about the new covenant, what does he say to Peter? Some of the most glorious words, kill and eat. In Montana, we probably live by that. But that's the reality, right? I mean... It's understanding that there's a lot of liberty out there. And so it's a call for us to have the humility that as we live out of gratitude, we're continually discerning what is pleasing unto the Lord. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. In our times of doubt, we appeal to the mercies of God. As we struggle through this age, what do we believe and remind ourselves? We're undergoing that Christian metamorphosis. We're being prepared to enter into his presence once for all. And it means that as we live out the gospel, we're going to struggle. We're not going to do this perfectly. But as we pray unto the Lord, what are we doing? We're saying, Lord, may I be an individual who lives deliberately with purpose before your face for your honor redeemed saint. And so let us then make this request in the humility that we need the wisdom of God. Let us make this request and understanding it's only by the redemption of Christ that we have life. Let us continue then as we walk in the power of his word and spirit that we are new creatures in Christ and we walk in the providential care of our God. So let us desire then and want as we pray this request that he chips away at the things that are inconsistent with his will And he brings to light the things that are consistent with his will. And that we want to walk in these things. Solely for his honor and glory. As willingly as the angels in heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is urcbelgrade.com, 
to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.